Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, man is, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you do not eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you from above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. I have this for you to start out in the service. What is this, you're asking? Well, this is a piece of stage that Mark Crow broke earlier today. I just want to bring this to your attention because when I, a couple other people saw this, they just assumed it was me that broke it. <laughs> and here's the deal. I, I get that. Um, people of a certain size know that any time you step on something, you're always just, you know, wondering like, all right, I think this will hold me. So I'm just really happy that today, Mark is the one who broke the stage and not me. So... I just wanted to share, you, share that with you. I, I cleared that with him. He's fine with it. I'm not bullying him or anything like that. So there you go. Hey, before I, before I get in, I want to just um, say thank you also for the work that you guys did on Affordable Christmas. Um, I know, like, I, I saw so many of you here yesterday, all day, and then you're back here today. So thank you uh, for the ways that you tangibly show the love of Jesus to people in our community. Uh, thank you for ways that, you know, it's, it's just, it's, Nothing about affordable Christmas is gonna solve the huge problems of the world, but what it does is bring light to dark places. Anytime we do that, we're spreading the kingdom of God a little bit more. So thank you so much for giving up a weekend, being there yesterday, being here today. Thank you if you're serving on both days today. Uh, I know that's a big sacrifice in a really busy kind of year, right? Because the, uh, the Christmas season is really busy. We're kind of just running from thing to thing to thing, always trying to keep track of the holiday parties and the gifts to buy and everything that we have going on. Uh, so my prayer uh, for this morning and really for these next few weeks during Advent uh, is that this would be a place of refuge and rest for you. Uh, because if you're like me, you're probably tired right now. Um, and you're probably just looking at your calendar, trying to pack everything out. So the invitation I would give to you is to come and find the rest and refuge that Jesus has to offer you um, today and the next three Sundays and then every Sunday after that. So welcome. I'm really glad that you're here. Um, let's pray. And then we will get into this sermon. Uh, so God, thank you. Thank you for... Everything that we sang today, thank you for the opportunity to remember who you are, to wait for you, to wrestle for you, to wrestle with you, to ask you to come and to ransom captives and bring it into exile. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we look around and we see that there is still a lot of darkness in the world uh, and we need your light. And we're here, we have hope because we believe that light has come 
and that one day you'll fill everything with light and put evil, darkness, sin, death away forever. So Lord Jesus, come quickly. Will you teach us to wait? I pray this all in your name. Amen. Advent is not the extended edition of Christmas. Uh, before I get into uh, this text in Genesis, I, I do want to just talk a little bit more about uh, the season of Advent, because what we're trying to do in these next four weeks is not just try to milk every bit of Christmas that we can out of the season. We're not trying to just make sure that we really, 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 really get it. Like, our world and culture does a fine job of extending Christmas really, really long. At the end of October, uh, Owen, my son, wanted to go buy a pumpkin from Home Depot or some Halloween decorations. It was the week before Halloween. So I was like, yeah, sure, let's go over there. We went there and there was nothing Halloween in that store. Everything was Christmas, right? So Christmas has been here for a long time. Uh, what we're doing is Advent. And Advent is all about waiting. The church for a really long time, since about the fourth century after Jesus has been using the four Sundays before uh, Christmas to focus on waiting. So I think we have a few different types of people in this room this morning. Some of you grew up Catholic or in a mainline Protestant tradition. You're really familiar with the church calendar. Uh, you're really aware of all the gaps that we have in our tradition and the ways that we uh, celebrate Advent. Thank you for being here. Some of you grew up in a church uh, that had no concept of the church calendar, the liturgical year. And so this feels strange for you. What we're trying to do over the next few weeks is to remember that light has come into the world and to remember that we are still waiting for a final full fulfillment when Jesus comes again and fills everything with his glory. So let me preview the next four weeks for you. The word Advent comes from Latin, Adventus, and I promise that's the last time I'm going to use Latin or any other language in the sermon today. Um, but it just means appearing. It just means appearance, coming, presence, Christmas is the celebration of incarnation when Jesus appears in the world, restores the presence of God, brings the kingdom, brings redemption. But you might be wondering, well, why do we have to wait for an appearance that already happened, right? Uh, the, the incarnation of Jesus happened 2,000 years ago. So why do we focus on waiting during Advent? I grew up in Cass County, Missouri. Uh, and one of the things that we did every single year was the Living History Festival. Um, at the Living History Festival, People would dress up in Civil War costumes and they would camp out and they would pretend like we were living in the 1800s and talk like it and act like it and reenact wars and battles and try to, I don't know, just have fun. I did not dress up, if you guys were wondering. I dressed up a little bit, but my friends made me do it. Um, the kind of waiting that we're doing, what we're doing in Advent is not, it's, it's not that. It's not uh, role-playing, it's not reenacting, it's not trying to just put ourselves in the shoes of Israelites, waiting for Messiah to come. The kind of waiting that we're doing is, is we're waiting on a king who promised he would come back. We're waiting for the second coming, the second appearance, the second advent of Jesus Christ. So we look back to his first appearing and then look forward to his second advent when he comes in glory, glory and we wait. And so the, the, the four historic themes, you heard Mark talk about it, about, of Advent are hope, peace, joy, love. We're going to look at every single one of those because when Jesus shows up, that's what he brings. Despair gives way to hope. War is replaced with peace. Sorrow turns to joy and love reigns in the kingdom of God. And yet, and yet, 
Advent is a time for us to remember, and I say that really intentionally, uh, to remember that despair, war, and sorrow are still with us. Why did Jesus come in the first place? Well, it's because we live in a world that's flooded with darkness, sin, and death. And all too often, we try to forget this, um, overlook it, focus on something else, uh, try to numb ourselves to the darkness that we feel inside of us and see outside of us. But the church in Advent has said, no, look at it. Look at the darkness. It's really there. Hope that does not acknowledge darkness and brokenness isn't hope. It's just sentimental, sappy, feel-good feelings. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to look honestly at the darkness in the world and ask God to bring light. One of the favorite things, one of my favorite things I learned this week when I was getting ready for this, um, hope, peace, joy, love. Uh, that's, those aren't the four themes that the church has always focused on uh, during the time of Advent. In the Middle Ages, um, Advent was a time to focus on judgment. So the four themes, the four weeks that they did were uh, judgment, death, heaven, and hell. And I told Mark, that's what we're doing next year. So Advent 2024, be sure to come back for judgment, death, heaven, hell. Why do they do that? Well, it's because we need to look honestly at the world around us. We need to look honestly at the darkness and see, grapple with, wrestle with, you know, God, what are you gonna do about that? Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in darkness and it mirrors this time of year, right? Days are getting shorter, nights are long and cold. We're looking for light and it's why we still sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here because we're still waiting on an end to exile. We're still waiting for the kingdom to come in fullness. So today I wanna to talk to you about hope. Advent begins in the dark but it is not a hopeless darkness. It is not a darkness that has the final say because Christians, if, Christ, if, if we're anything, if Christians are anything, we are a people who possess great hope. That should be the thing that marks us and defines us, even when the darkness is overwhelming. So our text is Genesis 3, 8 through 15, which isn't a typical traditional Christmas text, right? But... This passage is foundational for understanding how to cultivate hope when everything seems hopeless. And as we look at Genesis 3, I want to look at three different aspects of hope. I want to look at our need for hope, because we all need hope, right? We just kind of get that. We understand it. I want to look at the nature of hope. We talk about hope all the time, but what, what is it? What does it mean to hope in something and then finally, I want to close by uh, reflecting on our hope. If we have hope, what does it look like lived out in our life? So let's start by looking at the need for hope. Uh, if you close your Bibles, go ahead and open them back up again right at the beginning of the Bible. I'm going to just uh, read, start reading a little bit in verse 8. And it starts like this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So pause real quick. We're starting right in the middle of a story, right? Uh, there is clearly something that is going on before. You can tell that by what's going on and the fact that the first word in the sentence is and. We have to understand what has come before to understand our passage. So let me recap it for you. Genesis is the book of beginnings. 
It tells us about the world, about God, about who we are, what it means to be human. It tells us why things are so broken and beautiful in this life. Genesis 1 is a poem that revels in the goodness of everything that God made. If you read it over and over and over again, you're going to say, God called light out of darkness, and it was good, and it was good. Everything is good. God is like a master artist bringing peace and harmony out of chaos and establishing a place where his presence can live with people. Instead of um, being a harsh master, the, the, God, the, the God that we see in Genesis is not a harsh slave master. Instead, he is an artist. He's bringing life. He's bringing beauty everywhere he goes. And humans are the culmination of this artistic creation. He calls forth man and woman, Adam and Eve, and places them in this garden, Eden, which is supposed to be like a temple. It's this temple, it's this uh, area of land where God's presence dwells richly and people dwell in harmony with God and they have everything that they need. If you look around, you understand, no, that's not the world that we live in today. We don't live in a peaceful garden temple where the presence of God dwells richly. There is darkness and there is death in the world. And chapter three of Genesis tells us why that is. It's where everything falls apart. Because we see that there is evil in this garden temple. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know why I was able to interact with Adam and Eve. It's just stated as a fact that there is this being, the serpent. I'm just assuming that you guys have heard the story of um, the serpent being tempted, or the serpent tempting Eve. Uh, and he begins throwing doubt on the character of God. And it works. Instead of living in submission and harmony before God, People attempt to seize control, to be God, to secure ourselves, and it brings us to our passage because after the man, the woman refused to listen to the voice of God and said, listen to the voice of this evil one, this serpent, they realize their nakedness. They realize that they are weak. They realize they're vulnerable. They realize their shame and they try immediately to cover it up. But it isn't enough because... When they hear God coming, they hide from what? Well, they hide from the presence of God. So Genesis 3 paints this picture of humans created to live in the presence of God before the face of God, now hiding and trying to cover themselves and cut themselves off from it. But notice what, what God does. God takes initiative he comes to them. He calls out to them, hey, where are you? And of, cor of course, he knows where they are already, right? He's God. He can see. He, they, they, can't fool them. they can't fool him. But God, in coming with questions, comes with grace instead of condemnation first. He gives opportunity to return to him. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 13. God says, where are you? And he the man, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God, said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What do you see going on? Immediately we see fear and blame shifting. 
Adam is supposed to be responsible for creation. He's supposed to steward it, stand before God um, and take uh, accountability of the world before him. And what does he do? He, he offloads that. He refuses responsibility. He tries to pin everything on his wife, the woman. Eve, when she's confronted, blames the serpent in his deception. There's this immediate rush to justification, self-protection. And what follows, how God responds, is a pronouncement of, of, of judgment. And Whitney read it for us. We heard the judgment on the serpent read, but then after that, uh, after we stopped reading today, God also places judgment on the man and the woman. We see that there's gonna be conflict between husband and wife. Humans are sent out to work in a land that is cursed. And so all of life now, instead of being lived before the face of God in the presence of God, is now going to taste the bitterness of curse, chaos, and conflict. So why do we need hope? Why do we need hope? We need hope because we live in a world that is dark, in a world that is in rebellion, in a world that is under a curse. The Bible doesn't paint a rosy picture of the world or try to sell us on um, sappy promises that things aren't really as bad as they are. No, a foundational aspect about possessing hope is realizing, oh no, we actually really need that. Things really are dark. Things actually are broken. Death actually does happen. We live in a world where William Butler Yeats says it this way, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So why do I say all that? Why, why, why do I like, try to be depressing at Christmas? Um, it's because I think the major challenge that we face today is despair. We live in a world that is despairing and I think hopeless. One of the, one of the ways that we can see this is uh, the rise of so-called deaths of despair that's happened over the past decade. Economists, social scientists have talked about this. Um, it's in, in the decade between 2011 and 2021, deaths of despair, which are drug overdoses, suicide, or alcohol, more than doubled. And that's, that's just the most recent data that I could find. Um, and we all kind of know that. We all see that there is a general hopelessness. And I think it's multi-causal. There are a lot of reasons why that's happening. But if you look at the world, it's really clear that we are struggling to find hope. Young people, old people, wealthy people, poor people, we face despair. It is really real. And maybe it got escalated during COVID, right? It shook our confidence in people, places, institutions, processes. But the roots of that started a long, long time ago. The roots of despair were planted in this first failure, this first sin, this first rebellion in the garden when we tried to take control from God and were cut off from his presence. And so now we live in a world governed by sin and death. And Advent calls you to look at that. Not just to look away, not just to numb yourself, not just to avoid it. Now, the darkness is actually there. We really do need hope. And Advent also calls you to remember 
that in this world full of darkness, hope has actually come. And that hope begins in this, in this passage, in, in Genesis 3. So let's look at where we see hope in this passage and talk about the nature of hope. What is hope? If we live in a world that is dark and hopeless, what does it mean to hope in something? We typically talk about hope in a couple of different ways, right? My boys are obsessed with playing kickball right now. We've worn um, base paths in our yard. We've totally destroyed all the grass that I planted earlier this year. Um, and since it's getting cold and it's getting dark now, um, the, my, my boys, you know, I'll, I'll, get a, I'll get a phone call and... Uh, it's, and they say, hey, dad, when are you going to be home? Are you going to be home in time for us to play kickball? Um, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll try to be there. And they say, well, I really hope that you make it home before, um, before dark so we can play kickball. Or I really hope that we can play in the snow or, you know, whatever. They just want to play all the time. Um, their, their hope, they're hoping for something, right? They're hoping that I'll get home and that they're going to be able to play kickball. That's the way we talk about hope a lot. We hope that something happens. We're looking for something good and we're expecting it, desiring it, a little bit uncertain whether or not it's going to happen. There's another way that we talk about hope though, right? Uh, we talk about hope as the reason we have that something might happen. The reason we have that something might happen. Let me explain this with a sports illustration. Um, what is the Chiefs will only hope for winning a Super Bowl. Well, it's that Patrick Mahomes is awesome, right? We have reason to believe that the Chiefs might win the Super Bowl because Patrick Mahomes is amazing and we have a good defense too. But, you know, we'll just say Patrick Mahomes for the illustration. Um, hope is the agent or the thing that we are uh, putting our trust in that the thing that we want might happen. And we use hope in both of those ways. We hope that things that we want might happen and we hope that a person or a place or a thing will come through so that we get what we want. And the Bible talks about um, hope in, in both of those ways, um, but, but it is different. It, it's, it's also different. The church has looked at Genesis 3 as the first preaching of the gospel for thousands of years. Because Genesis 3 isn't just a pronouncement of judgment, it is God's first promise that he will not let things stay the way that we are, that, that, that they are. And so when, when we uh, read this passage, we get caught up in questions like, well, what's, what's the deal with the snake? What kind of tree was it? What kind of fruit was it? Why did that happen? Um, the, the key, the main emphasis in this passage, though, is not answering those questions. It's God's action in response to evil that we see. God's actions are center stage in this passage. So let me just make a few observations and point out ways that God acts here. Number one, God pursues Adam and Eve after they sin, which this would have been really shocking when it was first written thousands of years ago because the gods don't come in mercy and grace. If they're offended, if their honor is broken, well, they have to restore it. And they do that by punishing the people that broke it. God doesn't come like that. God appears first in grace, pursuing this first couple after they sinned. Number two, God gives opportunities for repentance, right? He comes questioning. He doesn't just come and deliver a verdict, deliver judgment. He gives opportunity for repentance to the man and the woman. He asks them questions, gives them opportunity to respond. And then after that, even after they refuse to take responsibility, God pronounces a curse on the serpent, on evil, but not on people. God doesn't actually curse Adam and Eve. He curses evil. Look in, with me at verse uh, 14 and 15. Then in response to all of this, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's really significant. The serpent here embodies evil, everything opposed to God, and God pronounces from the beginning that it will not win, and it will not have the final say. Next, God declares war, enmity between the serpent and the woman. You saw that right um, in, at the beginning of verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, which is really significant because God could have said, oh, you're just like each other, right? You did not listen. You're beyond redemption. I'm turning you over to evil. Instead, he said, no, no, you belong to me. You don't belong to evil. In fact, there's going to be war and enmity between you and evil forever. Number five, God promises that one day a descendant of this woman will crush the head of evil forever. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first preaching of the gospel. The old Dutch theologian Herman Bavink calls it the mother promise both because the, the promise of this deliverer coming is bound up with the act of mothering and because this promise is the mother of all promises that follow in scripture. The seed of everything that God says he's gonna do throughout history is found in these words. Listen to how Herman, Herman Bavink sums up this passage. He says, there is nothing conditional and uncertain about this. God himself comes to man. He himself plants the enmity. He initiates the warfare and he promises the victory. Man has no part in this except to listen to it and accept it in childlike faith. So what's the difference between the hope that this passage offers and the hope that my children have that I'm gonna make it home in time for kickball? I don't make it home for kickball every single time. There are plenty of nights where they are disappointed but what makes hope different in the Bible is that there is not uncertainty that it will happen. God's word is certain. His promise is certain. So I like this definition of hope. Hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. It is confident. It expects that God will do exactly what he said he will do. So if hope is something we desire, the reason we hope of the thing we desire will come true, then Christian hope is the restoration of God's presence. And the grounds for this is that God will be faithful to his word. And as you read the rest of the Bible, it really does not spend any time at all mourning the loss of Eden, because that's what happens. The man, the woman, they're, they're kicked out of Eden. The, the Bible moves on pretty quickly from that, which is kind of crazy because Eden is like the first paradise, right? There's everything that you need there. There's uh, um, happiness. There's plenty. There's fulfillment. There's meaningful work. And the Bible doesn't really spend any time lamenting the loss of that. What it does spend time on mourning is the loss of the presence of God because we're cut off from him. Instead of walking freely with him, access is gone and humans are sent east of Eden into a world that is dark and painful. But the message of the Bible, always the thing that God keeps coming back to is, hold on, trust me, look and see what I'm doing. Don't let hope die. Don't put it somewhere else. It may be dark, but light is coming into the world. So we all need hope, right? We, we can't live without hope. 
The nature of Christian hope is that one day God's presence will again fill the earth and our confidence that it's gonna happen is because God always keeps his word. So let's finish by talking about what that means for us today, our hope. Um, and, and this is the part of the sermon um, where I'm supposed to run through the list of things to tell you not to put your hope in, right? I've preached that before. You guys have probably all heard that before. Hey, you shouldn't put your hope in politics or politicians, right? You shouldn't put your hope in your 401k. You shouldn't put your hope in your bank account, your relationships, you know, your kids, any, any and all of that. And all of that's, all of that's true. Um, all of that's true. All of those things can be really lousy to put your hope in. Um, but I was, as, as I was like thinking and starting to write out that list, I was like, man, I don't think that's our biggest problem right now. I'm not sure that our biggest problem is that we are putting our hope in the wrong things. Because we are. Like, yeah, I I know that we are. I think our biggest problem is that we don't want to put hope in anything. Like, we're a really hopeless people. And despair and cynicism feels really, really strong right now. It feels way easier to say, well, of course I'm not going to put my hope in a politician or politics. Like, that never works. Of course, I'm not going to put my hope in things working out. Things don't work out. We live in a pretty dark and cynical world. And I'm worried that that gets inside of us also. So we're tempted to just numb, to check out, to not care about anything, to not let ourselves actually hope in anything at all because the darkness is real and the world is cold and things have happened and things will keep on happening. So why should we hope? Well, the word, word of the Lord to you and to us today is that light has come into this world. Not some other world, not some better world where things are easier. Light has come into this world. And yes, things are dark, there is a lot of reason to be cynical, but the overwhelming message from God to a dark and dying human race is fear not. Do not be afraid. What God has done in the world is greater than anything we see happening in the world. And that's the grounds for our hope. So Christians, remember your hope. Remember your inheritance. Remember who we are. If, like, if we're anything, if the message that we believe, that we say that we hold on to is true, then we of all people should have hope in really dark and cynical places. The entire Bible is about Advent. All of the Bible is about God pursuing us, calling us back to him, overcoming evil and winning the war through a descendant of Eve. And just to make it really clear for you, Jesus Christ is that one born of woman. Jesus Christ, truly human, bearing human responsibility before God, going to war with the darkness and the evil in the world. And Jesus is also Emmanuel, God with us. God still pursuing us to crush the head of Satan. God is light and the light of God is stronger than any darkness. And the place that we see that most clearly is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because God is not like us. The way that God crushes the head of evil is by being crushed himself, right? We, we look for might, and we talk about this a lot. The people in Jesus's day were looking for a military Messiah, someone to come in and drive out all the evil and uh, crush it forever, cast it away, punt it. And it, that, that, that's, that's amazing. But the way God 
deals with the problem of evil, sin, and darkness is by letting it all fall upon him, by letting evil bruise him, strike him, do its worst to him. And here's the thing. When light, the pure light of God, comes into contact with darkness, light wins. And so the cross of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, is the sure sign that light has already come into this world. So in this darkest part of the year, we light candles. We light candles on Sundays. We string up lights in our houses. We light up the darkness. And every single time that we do that, whether or not we um, understand it or not, we're saying that light has come into darkness. Yes, it's dark outside. And yet there is light that is coming. And our hope is that one day the very light of God is going to drive darkness away forever. And so we wait. We hold on to hope. We hold on to this mother promise that God will do everything that he says he will do. And I think that, that, that title, this mother promise, is really appropriate because the waiting that we do in Advent is most often compared to a pregnancy, right? It is something that is almost imperceptible. It happens in darkness, and yet God brings life where there was not light, life. And waiting can be difficult, but it is not hopeless, despairing waiting. It is a waiting in hope. So church, here's the promises of God to you. Jesus Christ has come into the world as light, overcoming sin, darkness, and death. He's the promised son of God. God has already struck the death blow to sin and death. You have access to him and the darkness that you see and feel all around you will not last. And if you're tired, hold on to him. If you feel the darkness, remember, Advent begins in the dark, but gives way to light. I'm just going to close by reading this from uh, Fleming Rutledge, who she wrote a great book about Advent. Um, I'm just going to close with her words. She says, a Christian hope builds its foundation on the promise of the living God that the random chaos of the world will be revealed one day to have been led and shaped by the same hand that reached out to heal the sick and make the blind to see to raise the dead and to call into existence the things that do not exist. In the midst of our fears and sorrows, even in the hurricanes and the ice storms, we have this hope. This is what the church whispers in darkness. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's pray. God, thank you that you bring light into dark places. And thank you that you've given us hope. Thank you that you take the initiative, you take the action, you pursue us, you do all the work. God, I pray that in this room, in this place, you, you, would, you would bring real hope. Um, because I know, uh, I, I know what some of my brothers and sisters are going through right now. Like I know the pain that they have, I know the darkness that's in their life. And there's so much more that I don't know, but you know, you see everything. Um, so God, I, I pray that you would replace cynicism and despair and darkness with hope this Advent season. Uh, will you help us to wait well? Will you give us faith? And Lord Jesus, will you come quickly? Will you, will you kindle a love in our hearts uh, for your appearing? And will you bring your kingdom soon? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.